what it means to be the church, to be Jesus' church. Last week, we saw that the church are a community, and yes, that's bad grammar, and there's more bad grammar in the titles we have. Just try to catch your attention. The idea of talking about the church are a community. The idea is that we are many different people being made into one group. And as I mentioned last week, I wanted to use this idea of community because God himself is a community. He is one God in three persons from eternity past. He is God the Father, Son, and Spirit have been in relationship, enjoying each other. And God has called us to be the church to share in that relationship that he has. Well, the New Testament uses two other word pictures for the church. The church is a body, a spiritual body, one body made of many parts. The church is a temple, in this case a building, spiritual building, that's made up of many, quote-unquote, bricks. And it turns out after the, the sermon last week, there was some interest for more to be said about this, and so we may be doing that. Today, we're saying the church are worshipers, that is, the church are people who worship, and in the Bible, God calls us to worship Him first. But I hope you're going to see today that something that worship is something that all of us do, that we're all deeply involved in every day, not just on Sundays. So what we're going to do is we're going to read our scripture from Ephesians, and then look at this idea of worship and kind of unpack it. So remain seated. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 to 10. Let's read this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So I want to begin today by taking some time for us to understand better what worship is, what worship means. Because I believe most of us are kind of fuzzy on the idea of worship. I know that I am still working on building a better understanding of what worship is. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about what I call worship with a small w. You'll notice in your bulletin you've got some notes, numbered notes under the scriptures. First note there, everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. And this is stated not directly, but you see it indirectly in the Bible. If you put up the next slide. In Luke 4, verse 8, Jesus is having a conversation with Satan when Satan is tempting him. And Satan has said something, and Jesus is now responding to him. And in verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
When Jesus says, it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And then, this week, I was reading through the book of 1 John in my own personal Bible reading. And this, verse John 5, verse 21, is the last sentence of his letter, writing to a church, to a group of Christians. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these kinds of things, it prompts questions. For example, why would God need to give us the, in the command in the Old, Old Testament, worship God only? Why would God have to tell us, worship God only? Why would John need to encourage the Christians that he's writing to, to not worship idols? We're going to talk about idols more in a little bit. I believe the answer to both of those is because all of us worship something. And, as I'm making the case, we worship every day. We all worship something, actually more than one something. And we worship because God made us to worship. Worship is more than just coming to a building like this, a church building, and doing the things we do on Sunday mornings, singing and praying and listening to a sermon. But if you grew up in the church like I did, this might be your default understanding. Because that's the only thing, most often it's the only thing we refer to as worship, is what we're doing here. This idea about worship and that we all worship something isn't just in the Bible. David Foster Wallace, a novelist, said, everybody worships something. Now he was not a religious person, but he recognized this as a part of being human. So in the bulletin, on the notes, you'll see this. The question isn't if you worship. The question is what or who do you worship? It isn't an if. Worship is not an optional activity where some people are kind of have that bent toward it and so, yeah, they lean towards worship and some other people don't. They don't have that bent so they don't worship. No, worship is not an optional activity activity. So the question isn't if you worship, it's what or who do you worship? Note number two from the book Reason for God, which happens to be one of the books we're using in our youth adult Sunday school class. And the writer's making a contrast. The writer says, when something or someone is useful, you're attracted to it for what it can bring you or do for you. If something is useful, you're attracted because it, it helps you get what you want. But if it is beautiful, then you enjoy it simply for what it is. And you can substitute for beautiful that word delightful, enjoyable, amazing. Just being in its presence is its own reward. So then he goes on later to say, to glorify or to worship something or someone is to praise, enjoy, and delight in them. We enjoy a lot of things. We actually praise a lot of things. Well, C.S. Lewis picks up this idea, and this is number three, of enjoyment, and says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. We not only spontaneously praise what we value, but instinctively urge others to join in our praise. Praise does more than just express enjoyment. It actually completes the enjoyment. And so then he, he explains... He says, it is frustrating to have discovered a new author. That's what he wrote. And I would add, 
It's frustrating for us if you discover a new movie or a song or a meme on the internet and you're not able to tell anybody how good it is. He's, he goes on to say for himself, it's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of the road. You turn the corner and all of a sudden a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur is open there to you. But you have to keep silent because the people that you are with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. You're amazed and they could care less. He says, it is frustrating to hear a good joke and have nobody to share it with. This is us. When we enjoy something, when we're amazed by it, when we're in awe, when, we, when we're delighted with it, we want to share with other people. This is worship. And then for those that want a dictionary definition, number four, worship is an act of expressing worthiness, repute, respect, reverence to a divine being. Worship is a form of religious practice with its creed and ritual, what we're doing here this morning. But if you notice, the dictionary definition is narrower and more traditional than the other three. It's right as far as it goes, but I believe that worship goes further than just religious type worship. That is something that we do. It's more than just the religious practice. So for example, this morning, is what we're doing right now worship? It can be. And I think for some here it is, but probably for some, if we're honest, it isn't. Is enjoying a beautiful sunset worship? For some people it is. Is washing your car worship? I don't know about you, for me it's a duty, an unpleasant duty. But I remember in college watching the guys with their sports cars and for sure it was worship. <laughs> Every Saturday if the sun was shining and the weather was nice, they were out there making their car inside and out pristine. Yes, that was worship. Is watching the Super Bowl worship for some, yes. Okay? Now, just a few thoughts, more other thoughts. You and I don't necessarily worship the same thing the same way all the time. You and I don't, if we're worshiping, we don't necessarily worship the same thing the same way all the time. Sometimes our worship burns like a hot fire. Just we, our whole, we are all in on whatever it is that we're enjoying. Sometimes, other times, worship is like a warm fire in a, on a cool evening. You, it, you enjoy it, you like the warmth, you're, in, you're kind of basking in it. The intensity is different, but yet you're still enjoying it. And then there are times where our worship of the same thing is just cold, because we're not. It varies. Our worship can be brief, I don't know about you, but there have been times where I was really delighted in something and then somebody comes and interrupts my enjoyment of it and I get distracted and pulled away. And then later when I think about it, I can't, it doesn't have quite the same feeling when I was there. But here's another thing. We can move our worship and do move our worship from one thing to another as we're worshiping. Now here's another key thought if you put up the slide. In worship... We do not just declare the worth of our object, 
That is, we don't just talk about our enjoyment of it, but often we also give it a place of influence in our lives. Have you ever heard somebody say, he worships money? Look at a mom. She worships her children. Or a guy who's in love. He worships the ground she walks on. Those are all things that have been said. What's going on? For the person who loves money, money has become the lens for them for all of life. They look at everyone and everything in the terms of, is this going to help me gain money and enjoy my money or not? For the mom who worships her children, her husband is a tool to help her worship her children. All these are examples of worship and how we can give influence to them. But there's also there's a sense of brokenness because the, the mom who worships her children, the man who worships the woman, worships the ground she walks on, they've made, these, the mom's made the children ultimate. The man has made the woman ultimate. But we're not. We're not ultimate. We can't take the weight and the strain of somebody wanting us to be ultimate, to be their answer for everything. We can't do it. Last week we talked about the big Bible story, that you can use four words to describe the big storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall from perfection. Redemption, restoration. One way to express the effect of the fall is that you and I are broken people living in a broken world, which means that our worship is also broken. That is, it is distorted. In those three examples I just gave, you can see it's obvious. The man who worships money, almost certainly whatever relationships he has are going to suffer. The mom who worships her children, that's brokenness. Worship isn't optional. But I would say this, you and I can and should worship, or you can use the word enjoy and delight in many things, in many people in many things. And I call that worship with a small w. But our worship of those people and things will be distorted if God isn't first place in our lives, just the way Jesse was talking about. Worship of God is worship with a capital W, comes first. So talking about worship of God, let me go back to the book Reason for God. We saw in there the writer says, if something's useful, we are attracted to it because it helps us get what we want. If something is beautiful, we enjoy it simply for what it is. The writer goes on to say, to glorify or to worship someone is also to serve or defer to them, which is the same idea I just talked about. That sometimes when we worship, we're giving that person or thing a place of influence in our lives. But then he talks more about worshiping God. If you go to the next slide. If we will center our lives on God, which is another way of talking, of saying if we will worship God, serving Him not out of self-interest, but just for the sake of who He is, for the sake of His beauty and glory, we will share in the joy and love He lives in. So on the one hand, he says, here's what you shouldn't do. Don't, quote unquote, do worship, serve God in order to get something. If you and I are doing that, we are using God. The thing we want 
is something other than God. We're just trying to get God to give it to us. The other one he says, no, in the other case, you and I worship God. We serve God because of who he is. And if we do that, it says we will share in the joy and the love he lives in. And that's part of what I was talking about last week. When I was talking about that God is a community. Three persons in one has enjoyed perfect relationship from eternity past, and he created us to share in that relationship. And as we enjoy God, worship God, serve him, we end up sharing in that. And that is a wonderful thing that God has for us. Then he goes on to say, The Son of God was born into the world to begin a new humanity, a new community of people who could lose their self-centeredness, begin a God-centered life, and as a result, slowly but surely have all other relationships put right as well. This is talking about restoration. You see the brokenness in our self-centeredness. Jesus comes to take us and move us, to change us, make us new, make us a new community, a new church family, a new temple, spiritual body, where we're God-centered. And when God is in first place, when he's in the right place in our life, all the other relationships get put right as well. So that is kind of an introduction. Let's take just a minute and look at our verses in Ephesians. But if you noticed as we read it together, it doesn't use the word worship. But it's all about worship. See, in Ephesians 1, it's the very beginning of the letter. The only thing we didn't talk, read was the first two verses, which is got Paul giving his standard greeting in his letter opening to the church at Ephesus. He immediately jumps in, and what is he doing? He's praising God. He's listing specific ways that God shows his love for us. In doing this, Paul is inviting the Christians that he's writing to to see and delight in God's love for them. Paul is doing here what he does in other letters where he just, he's kind of piling truth upon truth. He's just packing it down. And as he does that, and as they agree with Paul, as they look at this list of all that God is doing and, and who God is, the natural response is worship and praise to God. So let's take a minute and look at it. In verse 4, Paul says, God chose us, chose each Christian to be in his family before God created the world. And we find out as we read the Bible, God chose us because he wanted to. Not only did God choose us, but God chose us to be holy and blameless. That's not our natural condition. But if you think about it, God is holy and blameless. So this is a way of, of seeing that God's goal for us is to become more like him. That God is restoring his image in us. He goes on to say God chose to adopt us as his spiritual children. What you might do is just underline. If you go in the scripture, actually it is there. Huh, already did it. Look at all the underlines. God chose us. God chose us to be holy and blameless. God adopted us. 
It talks about God's grace. Those are God's gifts. That's God's love for us. He talks about it more than once. And later, in the same letter, actually chapter 2, Paul is going to show how clearly that you and I do not deserve any of this. We don't deserve any of this. Which is why he calls it God's grace. Because it's undeserved. Then he says, in Jesus we have redemption through Jesus' blood. Remember from last week's sermon. Redemption is Jesus buys us out of slavery to sin. Jesus pays our debt that we owe to God. Jesus does this for us. And how does he do it? Through his very life. He sacrifices his life as our substitute. Then he says, in Jesus we have forgiveness of our trespasses. What is trespassing? It's when you see a fence, and the, and the fence is posted with a sign that says, private property, do not trespass. And you climb over it anyway. And I've given you the description of the Ten Commandments, where in a sense God puts up a fence and says, danger on the other side, do not trespass. Do not steal. You jump over the fence and steal, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting other people. Don't do it. And what do we do? We ignore the sign, we jump over the fence. We deliberately disobey and rebel. And what Paul is saying, what God says, tells us in the Bible is, he offers forgiveness for our deliberate rebellion. And then, he says, God lavished his gifts. Now, we don't talk about this, but sometimes I think we think of God this way. It's as if God has all of his gifts in a cup and he has the smallest little eyedropper he can get. He goes, all right, I'm going to give you just that one little bit. And you, oh, half a drop. And he's just a little bit here, a little bit there. No, when he says lavished, it's as if God has a bucket and he's just throwing his blessings on us. That's what he's talking about when you remember that we don't deserve any of the good that God has given us, you realize, yes, God doesn't just give us little bits of good. It's gobs and gobs. It's buckets and buckets. And then, he says, God will one day unite all things in Jesus. One day, the day that God has set aside, the restoration that he's begun will be complete. The restoration will be complete. Now, as one person put it, and I don't know if he was rem remembering this passage or one like it, he says the entire reason for our worship for God is that God deserves it. God is, God is the only one who can do what we just read in this list. He's the only one that has done what we just saw in this list of things. Let me come back to C.S. Lewis for a minute. We already saw that he said... All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. We not only spontaneously praise what we value, what we worship, but we instinctively urge others to join us. But then he goes on to say that when something is admirable, that's not a word we use much today, when something is to be admired, he says there's two things about that admiration. One, it's fitting. That is, it's appropriate. It's not just an option. Some people might enjoy it, some might not. No, it is appropriate 
to admire, but the second, he says, it's necessary. It's wrong if you don't. And then he applies that idea to God. He says, God is that object to admire. He's the person that we are to worship where worship is both appropriate and necessary, because he goes on to say, to not worship God, to not appreciate Him, is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost it all. God is admirable. Worship of Him is both appropriate and necessary, and if, we, if you and I don't worship Him, we lose. We lose. Now, I said earlier we're going to talk about idols, where we do just that. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping something else, putting it first in our lives. An idol is anything that you and I try to put first place in our lives. Again, the place that only God deserves to be. How do you know if you or somebody else has an idol? If you say or think or are acting as if life only has meaning if I only have worth if, and the answer isn't God, connected to God. So for example, go to the next slide. Here are some examples. The person who says, life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others. That person is, has a power as an idol. The person who says, I only have worth if I am loved and respected by others. They have approval as an idol. person who says, life only has meaning if I'm being recognized for all of my achievements. And then look at this last one. might seem kind of strange, but we can actually do this because we can twist things wrong. Life only has meaning if I am keeping my religion's moral codes. Religion is about worship of God, but we can actually turn things upside down and make our religion first in our lives. Not instead of God, who should be first. I tried to, to find a way to, to help see this. And this next slide is a poor example if you put that up. On the left side, you see ordered worship, ordered loves, where God is first. And then you've got family, church, work, neighbors, and then the rest of life. And the order the other ones are in after God isn't a rule, but I believe it reflects priorities that you see in Scripture. So there can be a little bit of flexibility. On this side, you see disordered. So power or money or work or religion or whatever else it is that we made an idol is first, and everything else is all mixed up and jumbled. And here's the thing. This is all of us at one time or another. This is all of us. In the heat of the moment, we can say, this person, this thing, this grade on this test, having the last cookie in the cookie jar, having my spot on the couch, is more important than everything else in life. What have we done? We're, we just jumped into the disordered side. And we have an idol. How do you and I fix the disordered worship? For example, the guy who's worshiping money, the answer isn't to say, well, I'm not going to worship money anymore. 
We have to replace one object of worship with another. So we replace our worship of the idol with worship for God, and we do that by growing our worship for God. We've put God further down on the list somewhere. How do you bump him back up so he's up at the top? You grow your worship for God. And one way to grow your worship for God is to do what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 1. To look at who God is. Look at his character. Look at what God has done. And as you list those things, as you think about those things, especially when you and I remember and recognize that we don't deserve any of them, besides all the things he didn't list, our physical life, every good thing we have, we're told in the New Testament, is a gift from God. As we remember all of this and recount on it, what happens is we, it, it moves us to worship him. It moves us to delight in God. Now, our time here on Sunday morning is a corporate. We're gathered together as a group, and we worship. And I don't know about you, but there have been many times where I come into the morning not really delighting in God. My thoughts are consumed by something else. And often what happens is as I'm singing with others and I hear the prayers and I see the scripture, God moves my thoughts so they go to him. And I end up worshiping him. But our, our worship on Sunday morning feeds our worship of God during the week. Remember, worship is not optional. We're always worshiping. The only question is who or what. Our worship on Sunday morning feeds our worship of God during the week. But it also goes the other way around. Have you ever come to a Sunday morning and felt kind of spiritually dry and dull? Look back at your week prior. You were worshiping. Who or what were you worshiping? If it wasn't God, then no wonder things seemed kind of dry and dull. Our worship of God during the week feeds our worship of God on Sunday morning as well. Now this worship of God, we have many, many things that we do in our lives. There's some people here that are in school. So right now, the biggest thing in your life is school in terms of what you're doing daily. For some it's work in the home. For some it's work outside the home. So the what can vary, but the how God speaks to in his word. And in the middle of the school or the home life or, or work, the neighbors, all the other pieces, there are so many opportunities for you and I to see that God is at work and to thank God and to delight in God for what he's doing and how he answers prayer and works in us. You see, our worship of God touches every area of our lives because God is involved in every area of our life. And when you and I regularly worship God and delight in Him, we're going to want to tell others about God and about what He's been doing. Tell others, meaning Christians and non-Christians, about what God is doing. 
And we're, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, like Bob gave in his example with the offertory prayer. He had knee replacement surgery. He saw God answer, answer prayers. He saw God work in that situation. You and I, in school, with your family, at work, there are times where you can look and say, I see God working. I see God helping. I see God you know, giving strength. All the different ways that we need God, He's answering those. And so as, as you and I talk to people, which is what we do, as we talk to people and you get to know them well enough, you start talking about what you did during the week and things that have happened, whether it's Christians or non-Christians, it then becomes natural to say, well, I had this situation and I prayed about it and I had other people praying and here's how God worked in this situation. And you're not preaching to anybody. You're saying, is this kind of an overflow? This is, this is who God is to me. What he's doing. I want to finish with one person's summary of what he called true worship of God. And you're going to see that it includes more than just delighting in God. If you put up that slide. True worship of God includes loving God and delighting in him. That's what we saw in Ephesians 1, where Paul is listing out all the different ways that God is good. Loving God and uh, true worship of God also includes giving honor to God. Because he's our creator. He's our king. The king of the universe. He is, and then look at all the names. He's our sustainer. He's our provider. He's our healer. True worship of God includes giving our best to God. Because he is first in our lives. Which means we're not withholding. I think all of you, all of us have experiences where we've been dealing with somebody and you know, sometimes we reluctantly say yes to them, we're going to help them do something, but our heart's really not in it. As we see how God has given everything to us, we can give Him everything. True worship of God includes the right motive that we're worshiping God for who He is, not for what He can do for us. Because if we're, quote-unquote, worshiping so God will give us something, we're not worshiping anymore. We're using Him. We're going through the motions because there's something we love better than God, and we want God to give it to us. We need the truth. We need God's truth in order to love God rightly. And then true worship of God also includes obedience, because he has a claim on us. Not only did he make us and save us, he saved us. He keeps our life going. We obey him. When you begin to think of worship this way, as we've been talking today, worship of God this way, you and I don't add worship of God to our lives and think we can add it and the rest of our life will go on just the way we want. It won't. If we understand worship of God, true worship of God changes our lives. And that's a good thing. And that's what God's about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you we thank you and praise you that you are worthy to be praised, that you are good and great and powerful. And you teach us and you show us from your word how you call us to live. And you show us who you are. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our worship of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to finish with a song. Please stand.